do I have any idea what I'm doing? No. Am I banking on any of it to work? No. <laughs> but is it fun? Yeah, it is. It's kind of fun. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? All right. In today's episode, I bring on a good friend of mine, Tommy Griffith. He is the CEO of ClickMinded. Before that, he ran SEO at Airbnb and PayPal. And today we talk about something a little bit different. We talk about the idea of personal finance, but from the perspective of a founder, of a bootstrapped founder and how to approach it. And the reason for that is all the books we've read about finance, I feel like aren't designed for people that are going down this path of being an entrepreneur or starting their own company with their own funds. And I actually think you should probably do the opposite of what you read in those books. So we talk about this idea of diversifying versus non-diversifying, like where to put the profits from your company. Um, how should you be investing into the stock market or not be investing in the stock market? How to handle stock options whenever you work at a company and those actually go into the market and you can liquidate them. We even get into angel investing, like the good and bad of that. Now, Tommy and I have no idea what we're talking about. We are not certified financial advisors, but we just kind of go back and forth on how to approach these as we're running a company and how to manage your own finances. So really hope you enjoyed this episode with Tommy where we kind of get into the numbers. Enjoy. So we, we are here today for a part two with Tommy Griffith. So when I launched this podcast, I suckered some people into being some of the early guests and Tommy was guest number one. So I'm so thankful to Tommy. Thanks for coming back. I got you're you're real good at tricking people, Jim. I appreciate I appreciate <laughs> you inviting me back for tricking me for round two. It's like, wait, you're hitting record. What are we doing? So I haven't seen Tommy in about a year. We spoke about a, a month or two ago, but I don't know if you remember Tommy, but you were Tommy's super humble. He does so many cool things. He lives all over the world. You don't know it, but he was in Bali. He was in Hawaii. I lived through Tommy. Go back to the second episode. You can get the full story on him. But Tommy was in Hawaii. He sent me a note. He's like, Jim, I'm coming to Seattle, man. And I, I think I'm going to settle down there. And so I'm fired up. I've got two kids. I'm about to have like maybe a potential bestie to come out here and hang out. So Tommy comes to Seattle. I pick him up. We, I thought we had a lovely day. We went to uh, <laughs> Cary Park. We went to Gasworks. I took you to a really nice coffee shop. I bought you an Americano and I drove you home. And I remember you looked at me in the car and you're like, this was great. Let's do it again. And so I went home. I told my wife, I was like, I had such a great time with Tommy. I text you five days later. I'm like, hey, do you want to like go like skiing? You want to hang out? You're like, oh, hey, bud. I I'm in Miami now. I just uh, signed a lease for a year. Talk to you later. So I got ghosted hard by Tommy. Oh, um, oh man. <laughs> man, this, this, this is a very brutal uh, reconstruction of events. I don't know if it was that bad. But that sounds like a dagger there. I you're making me sound like sounding like a 
cold hard killer. That's not. That's this not isn't good. even a podcast. This is just vengeance for you leaving me in the cold. But, right. but anyway, dang I'm, it, I'm, dang. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot of fun, Jim. And actually, in 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 my defense, I guess in my in my defense or my explanation was that the last year's been weird. <laughs> the last year's been weird. I would call myself a bit of a COVID refugee and uh, <laughs> was kind of, kind of trying to figure out where to live. And if you recall, it was it was a very cool time hanging out. But, you know, January, beginning of this year, no vaccinations were out there. Seattle was kind of a weird place to be, right? And Miami credit, and the whole- nothing was open and it was rainy. I was like, <laughs> this is not a good time to be in Seattle. You need to get out of here. Exactly. And and for whatever reason, better for better or for worse, as controversial as it may have been, Florida just decided very early on that they were wide open. <laughs> for better or for worse. And that's where I where I ended up temporarily. So I promise it wasn't personal. <laughs> I promise I wasn't ghosting you. <laughs> and I'm excited to get into it because you did Miami. You're now in New York, which I'm so excited. I, I, I miss it like crazy. I'm excited to hear kind of your opinion on living in those two. We'll get into that. But I mean, we talked about this in the first podcast, but just give context. You know, can you talk about who you are and what ClickMinded is for anyone that didn't catch that first episode? Yeah, sure. So my name is Tommy Griffith. I'm a digital marketing guy. I've been doing online marketing for the last 10 years or so. I am the co-founder of a company called ClickMinded, which is a digital marketing training course for marketers and entrepreneurs. Uh, We've recently moved more into the uh, digital marketing resources space. So we create checklists and templates and worksheets and uh, tools that agencies and marketing departments can use for their digital marketing. Oh, so buttoned up and professional. So to dumb it down, <laughs> Tommy was a stud, ran SEO at PayPal and Airbnb, and is like, you know what? I read the four-hour work week. I'm going to go out and do something on my own. And just in the past year, you've essentially tripled your revenue by switching from, or not switching, but just like adding on a product line that looking back, it looks so obvious but it's it's super innovative and it's amazing what you've done. And I don't know if you want to talk through like, how were you able to unlock this new kind of revenue stream that like took you guys to this next level of growth? Yeah, so, so ClickMinded started as kind of an individual in-person course. I used to teach search engine optimization to startups on the weekends to pay down my debt and credit card bills <laughs> and, and to, to cover, cover San Francisco rent and happy hours and things like that. And it ended up just being the right place, right time with this kind of online course sort of renaissance that, that we're in now. And I ended up putting up a search engine optimization training course on Udemy pretty early. That grew and grew and grew. And I ended up leaving Airbnb to go full time on this and we expanded to more courses. That's how I met you. You you very humbly agreed to teach our sales funnel training course. One of our most favorite courses. Everyone loves the dashing Jim Huffman in that course. <laughs> but so we've kind of grown this into, we're sort of like a, a suite of digital marketing training courses now, marketing departments, ad agencies, and you know entrepreneurs and small businesses use it. We always had this product that was kind of on the side called the SOP library. And it was something my co-founder was a huge uh, proponent of. He, uh, Eduardo, he was a huge fan of really technical marketing content. He really hated low quality, clickbaity, business insider and entrepreneur.com articles. And we decided to pivot the whole company into like lots of technical walkthroughs, stuff that was 
kind of boring if you're just you know browsing Instagram or browsing Twitter. You wouldn't really seek these things out. But if you were looking to specifically accomplish something, uh, it was really useful, right? Very boring, dry stuff that's like like kind of not that helpful to someone randomly scrolling, but extremely helpful to someone looking for it. How to add uh, conversion events in Google Analytics. How to add the Google Tag Manager to a Shopify site, right? How to connect MailChimp to your Squarespace. You know, th uh, very very specific walkthroughs. And it turns out our users were just screaming for this stuff, um, especially ad agencies that onboard a lot of new clients or that onboard a lot of new employees. You know, the Facebook ads user interface changes and all of their SOPs to onboard has to, is broken and has to be fixed, right? Shopify changes something or a new tool suddenly comes out. TikTok becomes a thing or, or whatever it is. And so we realized that we really wanted this stuff. We sort of slowly dripped it out to our users and they were screaming for it. But we sat on it for a while. It was this product that everyone really loved and we didn't really focus on it for a long time. And Andre on our team, who's been working with us for a while, was also screaming at us saying like, what are we doing? This needs to be a focus. We decided to finally start focusing on it and it's been a, it's been a big success for us. Yeah, as an agency, we've actually been using it and it's been huge because as we scale, like, okay, we've got to document how to do these things. We have to make SOPs. And guess what? It is always the last thing a team member wants to work on because you're too busy delivering on clients. So when you rolled this out, I was like, uh, actually, this is a complete no brainer. We totally need it. So no, dude, that's amazing that you guys have done that. And I mean, kudos to you for kind of building that in the time that you have, which you know, the, I had Tommy come on today because there's a topic that we talk about like in passing never on the podcast, but this idea of personal finance. And we both have a lot of different opinions on that that I thought would be fun to get into today because I think there's a lot of traditional things you learn about finance. But whenever you run a business, those things don't really apply or they actually aren't that helpful. And you should maybe be doing the opposite. So I thought it would be fun today to get into, you know, what does personal finance mean as a, as a founder? So even like with that big like prompt as a question, like you run this business, you own majority share of it. When you think of like business finances and personal finances, like at a high level, like are there is a distinction between the two or like what does personal finance even mean for, for a founder? Yeah, it's I don't know. It's cool to talk about this, Jim, because I don't hear a lot a lot of this. There's a ton out there on personal investing and personal finance and people working at, you know, giant companies. And mashing this all up together is tough, especially if you're listening to this and you're, you know, you've just started an agency or you've just started a small business and you're like kind of constantly moving money around, maxing out credit cards, hitting hitting withdrawal limits all the time. That's very familiar, not too long ago, for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of, I guess the, the, the big things I think around this are like getting the big things right. And you and I have nerded out a lot on Ramit Sethi and his book, I Will Teach You To Be Rich, for anyone unfamiliar. I'm not sure about his whole backstory, but I think what happened was he basically had a personal finance blog. He turned it into a New York Times bestseller. And now he's doing all kinds of other things and appears on national TV and has all these online courses. And this, this guy's incredible. But it, it's not just his specific personal finance recommendations that I love. It, it's his big takeaway that like most things in your life should be the 80-20, right? You should kind of get the big things right and then move on. And this like high level 
sort of philosophy he has that's worked for me in so many aspects of my life is that like people are dumb and love to debate the minutia. Like we love debating the minutia, whether it's personal finance, like which stock should I pick or like fitness and health, like exactly how many calories do I need or exactly how many carbs do I need or exactly, you know, what kind of Bowflex machine do I need to buy, right? Like when, when the reality is like, most people should be in an index fund and most people should like eat fewer calories than they burn, right? Like, like different, different kinds of things like that. So, so for me personally, in starting my business and going full time on it, I found myself in the minutia trap often. It was things like, you know, like which credit card do you need for the most airline miles and like, you know, exactly what tool is going to do exactly how much for and how, you know, can I get on support chat with them and, and fight the customer service agent for 45 minutes to get a 5% discount. And like, I was really, really focused on the minutia for a while uh, before I focused on the big things, which was like, do people want this product? Can we get this to six figures in revenue? Like, kind of like these yes, no decisions on the, the, the big things. And I found that happening in a lot of areas of not not just my whole life but but personal finance in general as an entrepreneur you know what i mean yeah and i I think that's a really good call out on like focus on the big things and not get caught in the minutia because even as i think of like personal finance as a founder is there even a distinction because it's like you have this company where if you're bootstrapped you're going to own more than a majority share it's like yeah i could like pull money out and give myself a bonus and do whatever but it's like I'm more excited to invest in things for the company, whether it's hiring people, technology, acquiring things, because one, it's more fulfilling. And two, the ROI could be better down the road. And so it's kind of interesting because if you work at a company, you pull that money out, you're buying a house or doing whatever. But when you're a founder, it's totally different because even with ClickMinded, look at your performance compared to like the S&P last year, you're tripling your business like if I'm a broker, I'd want to be putting my money in ClickMinded as opposed to the S&P, <laughs> right? So it's, it's a better investment. So I always struggle with, at the end of the day, we're capital allocators, right? And it's like, but right now, betting on ourselves and the company is a, a better investment than, than you know, other things. So I, I struggle with the distinction sometimes. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And I think that a lot of people can get caught up in this. And I've, I've heard both. I've heard exactly your argument, which is like, I'm a, like, I'm a better investment than Coca-Cola. Therefore, like, I'm going <laughs> to invest in myself. I've heard that. The other argument I've heard is like, you know, okay, yeah, invest in yourself, invest in your company, but you don't know when things are going to go south. So you should have some money in the, in the safer stuff. I, I would actually challenge both a little bit to some degree. And, and I, I like, this is why I really like this guy, Ramit Tati, of this like, focus on the 80-20. And what's that philosophy of like, you know, anytime you ask yourself a question, ask yourself why five times to like get down to the root. It's like, I'm, I'm waking up for work today. Why? Because I need to make money. Why? Because I need to get out of debt. Why? Because I, because you know this, because that. And then the, the last why is like, because I want to prove myself to my parents or something like that, right? You always, like, <laughs> totally. you get, you get I, didn't get, I didn't get hugged enough by mom as a kid or whatever it is, right? It's like, you ask yourself why five times to get to the root of what you're getting at. And if you're, if you're on this journey, you're starting your business and you're focused on your personal finance, I think it, it can be really, really helpful to do that. Like ask yourself why five times and make sure you, you know what this is about. Like, 
your 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 why might be like you know freedom and and the ability to travel or your why might be security for your family or your why might be really like i want to be famous or i want to get a tech crunch article written about me but like when you get to those big meta things first it's a little bit easier to go back to that like capital allocator where's my yield where should the yield go because you just get more clear about like the engine that you're building and where it's where it should be taking you you know what i mean you know, and that kind of leads to some roommate study talks about is this idea of like your rich life, because it's so true as you work and you like want to make money, you, you, your bank account can get bigger, your your stock can vest and you can get all these shares that go up in value. But then you're like, OK, what do I really want with this? And the thing that I've kind of come to realization with, like, I don't really buy things. You know what I mean? It's like, I got some Viore, like nice, like athletic wear this year. And that's like me really splurging. I'm like, I'm a horrible, like <laughs> big spender, you know, but what I do care about is like lifestyle design and like crafting a day that like gives me energy. So for me, I'm all like, okay, what is my rich life? It's like, I want to like not have an insane amount of meetings. I want to be able to like work when I want and do what I want. And so what I'm trying, like getting to the why of things, it's like I'm working so I can like have this lifestyle that I want. So that's like that exercise he talks about with this rich life. It's like get into the tangibles of like, what does that mean? Like, what does your morning look like? How do you travel? Because some of his examples with his rich life are like, I want to do like three trips a year that are two weeks or longer. I want to fl fly first class. When I eat out, I get every appetizer and every dessert and it's like very like specific things that's that I think is more exciting and energizing when you're thinking about like why you're working and like what you're working towards and what you're going to do with your money. I don't know if that's like something you think about, but that's something that recently I've thought through with with his frameworks. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I love and a lot of this is it's like an evolution of, of the original Tim Ferriss book, The 4-Hour Workweek. Right. And he I think he called it like retirement experiments or something like that. But, but Ramit Sethi calls it spending experiments as well. And the basic idea is like, don't worry too much about costs as long as it's intentional. And he actually recommends, you know, you kind of make a list of all these things you want to try and then you go try them for a little bit. Like I think his first one he said was, all I wanted was an extra phone charger in my room. Like I wanted like a second phone charger, one for my bed and one for the kitchen kind of thing. And then it goes up and up and up to I want to stay in the most luxurious room in a, in a five-star hotel, like at, at this point in his life. But, but he had these recommendations. Like I think the first one was, okay, kind of like skincare and hygiene. He had like these, this idea to like, I want to I really want to buy all these high-end skincare products and hygiene and like see if this works. And he bought all this really high-end stuff and he was like, this does nothing for me. This gives me no joy. I don't see any impact. I'm throwing that away. And then the next one was like, yeah, book book a really nice table in a really high-end restaurant. And he loved that and he decided to spend more on that. So it was more about like using money as a tool and being really, really intentional about it and getting really honest with yourself around what you want doing small experiments of is this valuable or not and not being persuaded by by Instagram influencers on what you want. Like, you know, do you really need the Lambo or do you actually get a lot more value out of like having a maid come by your place once a week or, you know, donating to charity or whatever it is. And his point wasn't like want the things that I want, but want the things that you like actually intentionally go for and decide that you want to be 
a part of your life. So I, I think like wrapping that up into your personal finances as an entrepreneur is extremely helpful because it gives you that map for where you should take your business if you're designing your business around your your life. You know what I mean? I, I totally agree. Like for us, it, like me, it's like, I don't really necessarily want a fancy car, but like, I like being able to go on trips for a couple of weeks and work in cool places. I would much rather spend money on that. One, one thing we do in December where it's like, you know, this idea of rich life or whatever, we call it like Operation Big Tipper, where we tip 100% for the month of December because we feel guilty because we give nothing during the year. So December, like, okay, let's not be greedy and give. But what's funny is we'll go to like, we went to dinner and it was like 150 bucks. So you're, the tip's big. I'm like, okay. But the waiter didn't really move the needle. But then I'm in Texas with my wife. We went to a Sonic and the tab was 20 bucks. So I tipped 20 bucks in cash. And the the like 17 year old pimple faced kid, when they got that tip, they're like, oh my gosh, this is life changing. You know, at the barbershop, I tipped 40 bucks and that was like a huge deal. And it's so funny because it's like, it was nothing compared to the tip at uh, the restaurant, but it, it was fun to go through that. It made me, and selfishly, it made me feel good. It's like, oh yeah, I'm a big spender. I just, I just tipped 20 bucks at Sonic, you know? And right. it, it, it's so not, but like things like that, it's, it feels good to be able to do that, right? And it's 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 something that's kind of I don't know if it's dumb or silly, but it's it's like a fun little tradition that we do. No, that's super cool. I love that. And as someone who who bust tables and waited tables and bartender for six years, I very much appreciate that. But I I think that's kind of the point, right? Jim is like, what like this is the five whys question. Like, why are we here? What are we doing? What is money for? Like, what, like what it's, it's, it, is it just to hoard? Is it just to get to, to a super high number and then die? Like, what is the point? And if like, yeah, if you can make a 17 year old get super fired up for the day, that's, you know, that's, that's awesome. But, but being intentional about it is, is the whole point in my opinion. And it's super cool that, that you guys do that. Yeah. And one thing I'm interested to hear is like, your investment thesis or the frameworks you use for investing. Cause even just to be like transparent with the way I think about it, cause I like would read a lot of things in there. I was a finance major. I worked in investment banking. So I was like always nerding out on the stuff, but I found so much of the traditional stuff I was fed just wasn't right for me. And I found that my portfolio is like, I probably have too much in cash, a lot in the business. And then I'm, I'm in the market with probably, 50%, but it's all like index funds. It's non-sexy, very similar to Ramit Sethi, trying to keep like fees down. But then what I've been trying to do is with 10, I'm trying to get up to 15% of like my overall wealth is be super risky and just like go for big shots. And we can kind of get into angel investing. So that's been angel investing. And then I'm just like buying a little bit of crypto every month strictly for the FOMO. Just because I'm like, hey, just in case this is big, it's like I'm by no means a nerd because so much of it is like non-risky things. But the other thing that I've been big about is automating all this. That's something they talk about and I will teach you to be rich is like set the automation so you remove emotion and it just does it because it's not about timing the market. It's about time in market, right, is the phrase you hear. So that's something that I've been thinking through. But I'd be interested because another thing we'll get into is you got something to work for you very well, this idea of stock options with a, with a small startup called Airbnb and how that has changed things. But before we get into that, I'd love to hear like, what are some frameworks you think through 
with like how you approach your overall like portfolio of, of wealth and, and money? Yeah. So first things first, I have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. And <laughs> this is definitely not any kind of advice. Um, you would be very dumb to listen to any of this as actual advice. So with that, with that well out of the way. Yeah. So my, for me, it's been really easy because, because I'm an idiot, <laughs> because I don't, because I, I don't know what I'm doing. And I do take that standard kind of index fund, very boring automation approach, everything, all of this available on Ramit Sethi's website or his book, I will teach you to be rich. But I, I, I really go back to, to what he says. And, and this other concept, I'll send you a, a link to this guy's book and his notes. Maybe we can put it in the show notes of this one. But this, this incredible book is written last year. It's called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. It's really the one sentence description of it is investor behavior is everything. Your, your behavior is everything. And it turns out like this is one of these meta principles that seems to apply to other areas of your life as well. Like, do we all really need more information about most things? Like, do you need to know, do you need to pay for more information on the best workout? Like, do you, like, do you need more information around, you know, what to be investing in or like most of the time it's behavioral issues. It's our own psychology, Right. And I love that you brought up crypto and FOMO because this was my big takeaway as well. It's like, there's all these financial strategies out there and there's so many you could choose from. And one example that I, I remember looking at, you know, Airbnb had our IPO. It was this crazy day. And I sort of tried to figure out, okay, what to do next. And I was looking at all these possible options for investing. And one example I found that was very popular is called like a value tilt. You, you, you may be familiar with this because you're a finance guy. I was not familiar with this, but the basic idea is like, it's a basic financial portfolio, but you're sort of tilting towards value stocks. So things that aren't, it's not tech, it's not sexy, but it'd be things like Procter & Gamble and, you know, kind of these other like Warren Buffetty sort of people are always going to be buying these kinds of things, right? And I was looking more into this and I understood the reasoning behind it, but then the the when I learned, understood the mechanics of the portfolio, the basic idea is if you pick a strategy and it starts doing poorly, the point of this strategy is you're, you should be buying more of it. You should be, as, as your strategy is doing worse, you should be buying more, right? And as your strategies are sort of overperforming the market, you should actually be selling down and buying less. And I don't know about you, but like every night I come home, I can barely keep my hands off of a tub of ice cream. And that's every day, right? <laughs> and then I started looking into the, these, these different strategies and they're like, yeah, you know, sometimes you need to be okay to withstand five, 10, 15 years of underperforming the market. And I'm like, I'm like all right, well, I can barely get through tomorrow without, without, <laughs> without eating a Snickers bar, right? So <laughs> this was part of my, my reasoning around like, picking a, a very boring, very basic index fund portfolio is because the market average is actually better than what most people do. And, and it's not because I have any idea that I know, any idea of what I, you know, that I know what I'm doing. It's more that I know I, I battle FOMO every single day of my life, like you just mentioned with the crypto. And so my whole strategy was knowing my own investor psychology, which is like, I have ADD, I have shiny object syndrome, I get really distracted by things, I could be convinced by one podcast episode that I should change my entire life, right? <laughs> and so, like, what I basically decided is go to Vanguard, give the money to an adult, <laughs> and 
put it in a really boring, boring strategy that's like far away from me that I that I that I can't touch. And it's not because I know that that's the right move. It's because I know that my own personality can't handle it. Yeah, no, same here, like removing emotion. I do have like still this Ameritrade account where I look at all the actions there and it's strictly emotion based on things that I bought. And it's usually like after the fact of, of reading some clickbaity article around like how Tesla is going to be a $3 trillion company. I'm like, okay, I think now, now's a good time for me to sink my teeth into this. Yeah, you almost need like handcuffs. So it's like, you know, is this a good decision? We're going to ask you again in four hours and then you can execute the trade type of deal. Um, right. That'd, that'd be a great feature. They should all add that for sure. <laughs> yeah. You're so good. And so is, is ClickMind, is that an LLC? Yes, it is. Yeah. So I, I have an LLC as well, which um, can be good and bad. You know, your, your tax bracket can definitely go up as it kind of rolls down and it, it, it hits you. I mean, there's some other things that like the the SEP IRA of like the simplified employee pension, individual retirement account. I just read that. So I remember the acronym for that. So there's like things I've been and that's forced me to like put more in the market, which has been really good because there's tax advantages that you can take advantage of by by having an LLC thing doing up to like 58,000 a year in that. And then yeah, the rest I'm putting into index funds. And then I have that kind of slosh account where I make impulse decisions for trades, which is really dumb. And then, and I, I'd, I'd let, so you were at Airbnb, you were smart enough to, as you're vesting, you were able to, to make sure you got all those before you left. And then all of a sudden Airbnb goes public and it's a game changer as far as, you know, probably what your, your bank account looks like. And you kind of said you, how like you were researching on things to do, how has that changed your mindset with money and how's that even changed your, your own like lifestyle? Yeah. I mean, it, it was kind of nuts. I, I think the, I, I do have some strong opinions around tech and options and investing and all that. And I think we've, we've nerded out on this before in the past, but I got, I got really lucky. I got really lucky at Airbnb. And there was a bunch of fascinating things I learned that I sort of did accidentally correct, which was that tech, a couple of things. First, tech startup, the tech startup options game is uh, really a small number of outliers and winners. And the vast majority of, of tech startups go to zero. So they kind of say, they all say like, you, you know, when you're joining a company, you almost always want to value your options at zero because like the vast majority won't hit it. What the trend I noticed when I was there, I remember I got to Airbnb maybe one year or maybe two years in, I noticed that there were suddenly a lot of people that were much smarter than me that had sort of noticed Airbnb was going to be a thing. And a number of them were engineers from Facebook and Pinterest and Square. And they had been playing this kind of uh, startup rodeo game where they they're so sort of smart, right? They're sort of diversifying their bets within San Francisco startups, and they would do one year at Pinterest, one year at Square, one year at Airbnb, and sort of move around. But it was never at these no-name five-person companies. It was always like as employee one hundred or two hundred or five hundred, 
where they were still getting a massive salary, health insurance, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it wasn't really that risky if it didn't work out. And it turned out it almost always did work out. They were basically joining all these companies that, that did end up going, going public. I, I guess one other thing to, to think about is like the context of where you are in life. You know, like you and I are both in our 30s, right? And you have kids, right? You got a family. I'm a degenerate without, without a family now, but we're both like, we're both a little, a little bit further along in our career. But anyone who's listening who's 22, just by definition, your risk appetite is, is different. And I don't even mean that financially. I mean like your risk with how you spend your time. Like for example, even at ClickMinded in the first couple of years, sometimes I would redesign the site with a new WordPress plugin and it would break. And then I would just like, I would get busy with other things and I would leave the site broken for like a couple of days, right? But it was fine because I was young, my risk appetite was low, we barely had any traffic, it wasn't that big of a deal. If the site was down now, it would be a big deal. We'd be, you know, we would have 100 support tickets and we would have all kinds of issues with our, with our revenue projections and, and things like that. It's the same thing with joining a company. I joined Airbnb when I was pretty young. The startup stock options were a thing and I put almost all of my salary into buying them. So you, you could argue that I, I worked, <laughs> after California state taxes, I worked pretty close to for, for free for four years, <laughs> right? So it looks like a good move now, but there's a, there's a different universe where, you know, COVID was twice as bad and, and travel got, got beaten up a little bit more than we thought. And, and this does, all suddenly does not, in March, 2020, this did not look like a great idea, I guess we could say, right? So for anyone who's listening, like where you are in life and your risk appetite is also a, a, a big consideration. But the basic idea for me was, I got there. It looked like it was going to be a thing. And I kind of said like, okay, this is my shot. I'm going to go all in on this. And so for about six years or seven years, 99% of my net worth was in one stock, which is Airbnb. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're 20 something and you have no obligations and you're out of debts or close to out of debt, may, you know, that, that calculation can be worth it. But that's probably not something that you would do right now with I'm not I'm not sure if your your wife and kids would give you the thumbs up on that one at this point, right? And so so that's worth keeping in mind sort of where where you are in life. Yeah, that's such a good point because now you and I, as we are getting older, it's like a little bit more diversification, get that risk out. But when you're in your twenties, go all in because you're gonna be able to recover and bounce back significantly better. But it also goes to like you're always told diversify, do these things, but that might not be the right thing for where you're at into the risk appetite that you're talking about. And I, I think it's just worth like going back to first principles and really knowing what you care about and value before you take these snippets of financial advice that are the, the, the gospel to say like, hey, does this really apply? You, you also hit on something that I, I really struggle with because I have another buddy that pretty high up at Amazon you put in his stock options, he's doing like seven figures a year. And it's like, you know, is it the right path for me to be following my dream and like launching a company? It's like, or here's an idea, go to these startups that are like a B2C round of funding and just beg for a job and, and do that rodeo because it might be the safer and the more likely uh, path to, to if the, the goal is just financial outcome. But 
I don't know. It, it, it's, I mean, I've chosen my, my path. I'll continue down it, but it's, it's an interesting exercise to see. Cause I, I have many more examples of friends that have gone down your path of getting to a startup that's clearly past product market fit and is in that growth phase that have had amazing exits as opposed to buddies that started something from scratch. And now they're just like, you know, Scrooge McDucking it every, every single day. But I don't know, it's, it's an interesting exercise to kind of think through. Right. And it, it, it comes down to like that five why question again, right? You really have to get into what you what you're actually trying to, to do. I love that quote. I have no idea who said it, but it's that <laughs> you don't get wealthy through diversification. You stay wealthy through diversification. And I had, you know, I mean, just learning how this, the, 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 the market works and all that. I remember there's just like, you know, I was 20 years old. I opened up my, what was it called? Scott trade. Was that, was that one of the brokerages? Oh, I opened up my, my Scott trade. Right. $6 trades. I was 20 years old and I would, you know, I would buy like, a broadly diversified ETF with my $90. And then I'd sit there checking it every week and be like, well, what the hell, right? <laughs> like, why isn't it going up? And just like, you know, being diversified with my $90 as a 20 year old, I, I, I guess I was learning the market, but I don't, I don't know if that was the right move. So yeah, I think uh, the other thing too, I, related to this gym that I, I think is interesting to talk about is like, risk tolerance in general. So, so, okay. The generic advice, like when you're young and dumb and you have no obligations, okay. Swing more, take more risks. That's fine. But one thing that I think a lot of people don't talk about a lot is like, I think people have more risk tolerance than, than they're willing to admit. Like we, we are all like what I, and I'm curious to hear, like when you, when you fully went all in with, with growth hit and like you, you've pulled the trigger on it. If you're, mentality change on this. But when I went all in on ClickMinded and went full time on it, I found myself getting more and more comfortable with pulling the trigger on, on everything, not just like business stuff, but even like ordering at a restaurant or deciding to go somewhere. It's just like pull the trigger, right? Because what I found is like you, you end up accidentally becoming more risk averse when you're in this big company kind of mindset. And like this, this kind of gen general advice that I've sort of come to discover is that like the stakes are a lot lower in most things than we think. We're kind of wired as humans to like be risk averse. We don't want to be eaten by lions. We don't want to be eaten by like, by like an incoming tribe. We have this like 200,000 year old like psychology around us. And like the reality is like, there's no lions. You're not going to be eaten by anyone. You have a 99% chance of living every single day. Right. But we could sort of carry that behavior over to like our our, our lives and our side projects and our businesses, and we don't pull the trigger enough. And like, I, I found that it's extremely liberating starting your own business because you, you realize that like sending that email to someone that, that could be an investor or could be a customer or something like that, it's, it's actually not that risky. You actually can do it. Setting up that website for your side project, there really isn't any downside, right? Like most things don't have downside and actually we kind of have, especially if you're a knowledge worker and you're listening to this podcast, you're probably interested in growth and digital marketing and like internet businesses. We kind of have infinite tries at most things. You're like, like you're not gonna be, you're not gonna be murdered in the street for for setting up your Shopify website, right? So, uh, I have found that that has been an extremely liberating part of starting my own business and trying new things with personal finances within that business. Is that like? The stakes are often pretty low 
most of the time. And that, that's been really helpful from a behavior point of view. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and for, for myself, like during COVID, we like lost half our business and it was a crazy time. But like, was it that crazy? Because, you know, we have some contractors that are hourly so that we could like flex on that. And then we bounced back pretty quick. And I was talking to somebody and they're like, you know, what have you learned from that? What, what did that change? I'm like, honestly, like when it goes really bad, it's not as bad as I thought and it's going to be okay. And it made me think, Hey, I should actually take bigger swings and be more risky. Cause even when I launched the company, I remember people, oh, you're starting a company that's so risky. Like, not really. I was already consulting for a year before that. I got three companies to offset my salary and guarantee six months of work. If anything, I was way too conservative. So I, I think like how I launched it and then going through that, it's made me want to take bigger swings. So just this past year, we've been hiring more. Like we're not in over our skis with what we're doing, but it's like, Let's do this because I, I think momentum and timing and speed and being decisive is so crucial to business. Like making a decision by indecision is, I think, the worst thing you can do when when running a company. And so th that's something I've kind of learned the hard way, I think, over the, the past couple of years. Yeah, I 100% believe that. Nathan Barry spoke at a conference I was at. I know you spoke with him recently. And he was talking about when he jumped to doing ConvertKit full-time. And he was, I think he was talking to his wife. And he said something like, you know, I'm gonna, we're going to try this. And I'm going to go full-time on this. And it could be really scary. And it might go really bad. And like, you know, if it doesn't work, this and that. Here are all these scenarios. And, his, and, and, and he was sort of trying to explain the worst-case scenario. And his wife kind of like shrugged and, and said to him like, no, you'll just, you'll do consulting. If, if it doesn't work, like it's <laughs> like everybody calm down. And I think she was right there. And I think, I think that's like, you know, I think that's an, a, a really, really helpful mentality to have going forward that we're all so blessed to be able to, if you're listening to this podcast, you are an elite, you are in the 1% of all humans to ever live, right? Like it's extremely nice to be in this circ in these circumstances that we're in. And it turns out you probably have infinite tries at whatever it is that you're, you're, you're trying to do. You know, don't don't put 99% of your money in in crypto or on on red or on black or like or you know actually take these big all-in financial risks, but most things don't cost that much money to try. And you can sort of try again and again and again and again. And it's our it's our own psychology that that gets in the way. You know what I mean? I know. I always picture this doomsday of me with my family under a bridge in a sleeping bag, being like, It's sorry, I let you down. It's like it's not gonna come to that. It's like I'll go on Fiverr. I'll, I'll find some, I'll find some income. I mean, you and I have both been doing like some angel investing. Like the one of the reasons why I'm doing it is just because we work with so many startups. I'm always like, where can I have an unfair advantage? Like I look at people that have real estate companies that buy up houses and they have an unfair advantage in that. Like one little unfair advantage we have is we're seeing some cool startups at this inflection point where they go from idea to traction to growth. And so trying to jump in on those, but it, it, it's been interesting and fun to have to like go through that thought exercise. But honestly, it's a little anticlimactic where like, all right, we make this angel investment. Here's this check. And then, well, ask me in eight years if it was a good decision, you know, and it's, you know, there's a big pause that, I mean, I have no idea if I'm good at it or not. I, and I know you've been kind of going down that path, but what's your feeling as you've been kind of starting to do angel investing? Yeah. So, I mean, my God, if there's anything you should not listen to me about, it's this. It's, I truly have no idea 
what I'm doing here. I, I'll tell you all the reasons why I am doing a small amount of angel investing right now. And I'm tell, I'll tell you a bunch of reasons why I'm bad at it and why I hate it and why it's been really hard so far. It's all of the things you just you just described. So first of all, the feedback loop on it is extremely slow. If you set up a Facebook ad right now today for your product, you can get feedback on how it's performing within 10 minutes, right? And the average angel investment, you're going to get feedback on in, in, in eight years, right? So that's extremely difficult. I've also just gone through this experience of my, my I had wealth at, in Airbnb equity that was locked up for eight years. And it's, it's hard. It's very tough. Um, it's very tough to do. And I'm actually quite hesitant to, to, to do it again. The other thing too is around valuations right now. I run a lifestyle business. Lifestyle businesses are much different from venture backed, you know, multiple on revenue software plays that focus on massive markets and things like that, where other large investors are, are involved. You know, I've had examples, for example, I've seen like pitches come in, in some of the angelist syndicates I'm in, where a bunch of people decide to invest because the founder's really good at pitching other investors for the next round. And I would be like, well, wait a minute, what's the, what's the product? Where, where are the customers? Why hasn't the guy even set up a website? And I'd be like, this doesn't make any sense. I don't understand any of this. I'm out. And then I find out six months later, the, the company is worth seven times more because, because, of exactly, because of exactly what they said. He, they're really good at pitching to the next round. So I just, I, 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 I'm not saying that, that that's a scam or that's bad. I'm saying like, I, I, I truly don't fully understand it yet. So now what, an interesting innovation is these kind of angelist funds, which are basically individual syndicates that set up these funds that they sort of invest for you, right? They sort of go and you pull in a bunch of money and they invest across 20 or 30 or 40 startups. And so, so far I've done that and I'm much happier with that, which basically giving it to someone else who understands this stuff a little bit more, but you're right. The intellectual exercise of seeing the startups, seeing their numbers, seeing what the founder's working on, it's super cool. I really enjoy that. It's very fun. It's fun to nerd out with other people on the same things. And it's really cool when you have expertise and stuff and you can help. On, on things. So do I have any idea what I'm doing? No. Am I banking on any of it to work? No. <laughs> but is it fun? Yeah, it is. It's kind of fun. I know. I'm like, I'm, I'm, they say if you do it, you need to do at least 20 investments because it's like this one in 10 ratio. The other thing that's tough is you make an investment one and then they do another round like, hey, do you want in on this next round? You're like, oh, well, as I read the book Angel by Jason Calcanis, it says you've got to ride your winners and keep doubling down. And I'm like, well, crap, now 50% of my portfolio is going to be in this one company. And so it's been interesting to have to like make those decisions because I find myself asking like, hey, what's the smallest check you'll take? Okay, is, is usually how my conversation goes with that. <laughs> right. But yeah, man, so we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll do this episode in eight years and we can compare our angel portfolios. <laughs> yeah, people will be uh, on the edge of their seats waiting for that one, I'm sure. Right, exactly, and, exactly. Yeah, do you think we'll, there will even be podcasts in eight years? I feel like we'll be, <laughs> we'll be living in the meta in the meta universe, like exactly. some, some version of audio, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's version of whatever podcasts are eight yeah. years from I'm now. I'm hoping we'll have, we'll have holograms. So, so people right. can, can say, hopefully you'll be in an island. So you have a really nice base tan. So everybody can, <laughs> can look at you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, dude, this is, so I'll make you one last question. You did in Miami, you did in New York. How are you liking New York compared to Miami? I am, I hate to be a hater. <laughs> I think, <laughs> but where's my soapbox? I, 
I think Miami's overblown right now. I think it's a little bit overblown. I think it was very interesting at the beginning of the year when, when the world was very different and it was very open. I do understand the exodus from the kind of high tax previous tech hubs of New York and California. I do get why people are leaving. Basically, people in California are going to Austin. People in New York are going to Miami. Uh, on paper, all of that makes sense and I get it. I got to admit to you, Jim, I mean, I was in Miami for six months. I did not meet a single engineer there. Wow. Not one. And I think that's extremely telling. I think Miami is going to be a place where people throw parties. I think it's going to be a place where people raise money. I think it's going to be a place where people possibly in incorporate. You could argue if you're building remote teams where developers are all over the world, then maybe it'll work. But I found in my personal experience, it was a lot more shaking hands and kissing babies than it was actually getting anything done. And Miami is, was, is a great place for a three-day weekend. But I don't know, try and try and house a whole startup and, and hang there through the summer. And it's, I think I, I understand the reasons on paper why there's everyone's so excited about it and what the, the stuff the mayor's doing is very cool. But I think in practice, it wouldn't surprise me if people end up leaving pretty quick. That's at least what happened with me. Hot take. I like it because, again, <laughs> I'm like the FOMO. I'm like, oh, man, Miami looks cool. Is that where I should put my family? But that, that's super interesting. And you being in New York, man, the energy in New York, it's so contagious. Everybody's doing something interesting. It's nice to see that it sounds like it's, it's, it's bounced back very, very well. I met so many fun, interesting people doing their own thing there. I, I, th I do think that's a fun place to be. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of it comes down to, again, back to what you want. I mean, we're, we're not raising money. We don't have investors. We are, have built the company up a lot, but all of our team is, is remote. And the reason why I'm in New York has actually has nothing to do with work. It's exactly for the things that you just described. Most of the people I've met are like, you know, artists living in Brooklyn or people working in like people that don't even know what digital marketing is. And it's kind of, yeah. it's kind of nice to do that. It's complete personal choice. It actually has nothing to do with the, the company or anything like that. So that's the beauty of having a lifestyle business. That's, that's a little bit remote is you can kind of decide to do those things whenever you want. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I'm excited for you to come back to Seattle in August when it's glorious, not in January, but um... I'm in. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthHit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. 
I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. 